Well, good afternoon again. I am uh, Rob Crespo. I forgot to introduce myself earlier. I'm one of the deacons here at LifeSpring. For anyone that does not know me, thank you for joining us today for this Christmas Eve service. As we go through the Advent season, we celebrate four weeks of preparation for the coming of Christ. Four weeks. Starts off with hope, and we celebrate love. We talk about joy, which we did last week, and this week we celebrate the peace, the peace that comes because of Christ. So the one question I have for you that I'm going to try to answer with today's sermon is this. Is the Christ a symbol of peace for the world? Is Christ a symbol of peace for the world? But before we do that, I want to take some time to examine, was the Christ a symbol of peace for Mary and Joseph? So we're going to take a step back and look at some history there. All right. So hold on. We've got a lot of scripture to go through. All right. So I hope you're ready. In verse 20 of the first chapter of Matthew, we see Joseph is in a serious predicament. All right. He is betrothed or his betrothed, excuse me, was found to be with child. His virgin bride was found to be pregnant. Just think about that for a second. That in and of itself, we could go down a different road, but we're going to get there, so hold on. So besides the obvious question, the question I I ask myself is, why is this so troubling? See, the way Matthew is written can cause us to gloss over all of these details and all of the human aspects of this story, so I want to unpack that a little bit. So, you see, Elizabeth and Zechariah lived in the hill country of Judea, and I think I've got a map up there, so if you can put the map up and just kind of leave it on there, I want to, it's kind of hard to see, but the lower arrow points to the hill country of Judea. You see, where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived was somewhere within about five to ten miles or so from Jerusalem, which makes sense because Zechariah was a priest and he would go serve in the temple in Jerusalem. So it makes sense that he would live in the general area in order to make that journey for his two weeks of service that we talked about last week, and he would go there, serve, and then come back to his hometown. But Mary and Joseph didn't live near there. You see, Mary and Joseph lived in that upper arrow, and you don't have a scale to understand the distance of the map, but the distance between Nazareth, which is in the province of Galilee, was about 60 miles from where Elizabeth and Zechariah lived. 60 miles, all right? Can you imagine that journey? How long would that take? Well, I asked that question, so I went and looked it up on Google, and I said, How long does it take a person to walk 60 miles? Well, the average person can walk generally about three miles per hour. That's over flat terrain, that's unburdened, without any backpacks or anything like that. That's about three miles an hour. So 60 miles at three miles an hour means about 20 hours of walking. Okay, That's not including breaks, that's not including stopping to, to use the bathroom or get a bite to eat. You see, and they didn't have McDonald's there, so for them to make a meal, it, it took a little bit, right? 
It, was not, it wasn't going to be just a straight 20-mile shot or 20-hour shot. This was going to be something that probably actually took a couple of days. So I would estimate at a minimum probably three to four days of traveling, possibly as much as a week's worth of travel to go 60 miles. You with me on that? Sound reasonable? All right. So the angel told Mary that Elizabeth was in her fifth month. She travels, and it says she travels in haste to get there. So she packed up her bags. She wanted to go see her, her relative Elizabeth and spend some time with her because she knew Elizabeth was old. We talked about that last week. She was like, whoa, what is going on here? So, and on top of that, the angel said, you are going to be with child. And she's like, whoa, hold on. I haven't known a man. We know what that means. That's for the children, so this, we keep this G-rated. <laughs> That doesn't happen. And he said, don't worry. God is going to cause this to happen. That's my translation. God is going to cause this to happen, but your relative Elizabeth is with child. So she packs up her bag. She runs down there or, or gets a donkey and travels down there. And so about a week later or so, she's probably there with Elizabeth. And when she walks in the door, what happens? We talked about this last week. The baby inside of her leaped for joy. And she said, how is the mother of my Lord here with me right now? So at that point, my thought process is, is that she has now conceived, that she has the Lord Jesus inside of her at that time. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that the angel said she was going to conceive, and we know that Elizabeth was overcome with the Holy Spirit, and she spoke prophetically saying, how is the mother of my Lord with me right now? So Unless the Holy Spirit re revealed that to her, and unless she had a baby inside of her, I don't see how that could have happened. So I'm going to assume at that point, because I think it's logical to assume that, that Elizabeth knew and spoke because Mary had Jesus growing inside of her. So now we're roughly a week into her 40 weeks, right? About a week in there. How long did Mary stay with Elizabeth? Three months Stayed with her three months. We get that from Luke 156. It so, so, says it right there. She stayed with her for three months. And then she now makes the journey back up to the top of the map. 60 miles. Now Elizabeth stepped out, but I was going to ask her, how long do you think it would take a four-month pregnant woman to travel 60 miles? <laughs> you think it's going to take her a week? Probably not. Probably going to take her a little bit longer, right? I'm going to estimate at least double, okay? Maybe she's an athletic woman. She can get up there and a little bit faster, but let's say a couple weeks. So now she comes back home, and she is four months pregnant, give or take a week or so. Now, can you imagine walking into your house? Come on. Joseph is there, and he sees you. You left, and you were not pregnant, and you come back, and now you are four months pregnant. Just think about that for a second. What would happen? What would go through your mind? See, if I was Joseph, I would at a minimum feel betrayed, hurt, infuriated, embarrassed. All of those emotions would overwhelm me because the woman I was betrothed to, and for in that culture, betrothed basically meant you were married for all intents and purposes. 
The woman I was betrothed to is now four months pregnant, and it wasn't by me. Man. And now, Greg says in that culture, Elizabeth, you're here now. That's okay. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) The question I posed a second ago when you stepped out was, we, we walked through and, and talked about how Mary was probably three and a half to four months pregnant and then traveled 60 miles from, from Jerusalem to Nazareth. How long do you think a four-month pregnant woman would take to go about 60 miles? <laughs> Thank you. Have a <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they make side saddles for donkeys or but that just that just wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So, Greg brought up the point in that culture, and that's what where my mind went to as well was what was culturally accepted at that time. So, in order to do that, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 27. Listen to this. It says, If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in a city and lies with her, then you shall bring both of them outside the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because she violated his neighbor's wife. You see, they considered betrothal equivalent with being someone's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The reason why they took them outside of the city was to symbolize removing them to the outer darkness and outside the city, outside the fellowship of the body of, of, of God, the, the Jewish culture, the Jewish uh, family. But if, if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man sees her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman She has committed no offense, punishable by death. For this is the case of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met met her in the open country. And though the betrothed woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. So, you see two cases here. She could either be stoned, even though we didn't have the man there, or she could be released. Nothing happens to her. But at the same time, she's still pregnant. She's still four months along. You see, and in that culture, what could have happened if Joseph would have said, I'm angry with you. I'm, you, just, you had a relationship with a man in this city or sometime when you got to Jerusalem. He could have done that. And you know what probably would have happened? She could have said nothing in her defense. That was not accepted in their culture. She couldn't have tried to defend herself and say, no, no, this happened in the open country. He could have accused her. He probably could have found false witnesses. We never saw that anywhere, right? That didn't happen to Jesus, right? There were people out there who could be bought to bear false witness against others. He could have done that. But what did Joseph do? Joseph chooses 
against probably his better Jewish judgment, to try and find a way to divorce her quietly. See, my guess is that his love for her was still there and his love won out. While he was not willing at that time to continue to marry her, he was still going to divorce her because of her apparent sin. He was not willing to condemn her to death because of it. He was seeking to end this engagement quietly, to keep her from being put to death by stoning, and probably also to keep a little bit of his own dignity and, uh, and not be embarrassed. And then enters the angel of God. He bid him not to worry. Literally, to have peace. He told him, have peace. Because God's got a plan. He told him to take Mary as his wife, to raise the child up, even though it wasn't his. He bid him to have peace in spite of this countercultural course of action that the angel prescribed. He bid him to have peace and raise the child that was not his own flesh and blood. Man, that's just not something that happened back then. So, what does it mean to have peace? In order to understand what it means to have peace, I think the first thing we have to do is understand what it means or what it does not mean to have peace or what peace does not mean. The first thing peace does not mean is it does not mean an end to war in this world. To understand peace, we must understand the opposite of peace, war. You can't understand peace without understanding what war is. Ecclesiastes 3.8, Solomon says, a, there's a time for war and a time for peace. You can't disconnect the two. A cursory reading of the whole Bible will remind us that war is going to be around and will occur up until the return of Christ again. It's going to be there until Christ returns again. What does Jesus say himself about peace? About him coming to bring an end to war? What does he say? Matthew 10.34, he spells it out clearly. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Second thing, peace does not mean an easy life. Matthew 10.35 and 36, Jesus continues and says, For I have come to set man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That doesn't sound much like peace to me. Luke 21, 17. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That too doesn't sound like peace to me. Jesus coming into this world was not meaning that we're going to have an easy life. So peace does not mean an easy life. The third thing peace does not mean is a feeling of happiness with everything. It doesn't mean claiming ignorance of problems or challenges or truth in order to avoid the struggles the real struggles in this world, and to seek pleasure. So you can't ignore the problems or challenges of life. That doesn't bring you true peace. 
You can't ignore the truth. Just because you ignore it doesn't mean that you automatically have peace. The problems are still there. So, what does peace actually mean? What does the Bible teach us about peace? You see, the angel challenged Joseph to have peace in spite of his feelings. In spite of the anger, the embarrassment, the betrayal he felt, the angel said, in spite of that, have peace. Why? Because the angel told him that in light of the truth that God was telling him that he should have peace. The truth is is that God had a plan that he was working out in this situation. In a similar way, the apostles and the writers of the New Testament commonly exhort their audiences to have peace. All right, hold on for this, uh, this litany of verses. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone. 1 Peter 3, 11 says, Let him seek peace and pursue it. 2 Peter 3, 14, Be diligent to be found with him, or by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 2 John 1, 3 Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. 3 John 1.15 says, Peace be to you. Jude 1.2 says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied in you. So why do I say all those verses? Because if the apostles and the writers of the New Testament kept exhorting their audiences to have peace, they must have known that it was possible to have peace. Otherwise, they wouldn't have told them to have peace. Right? If they kept exhorting their audiences to have peace, they must have known that there was a possibility to get peace. So what does the Bible teach us about peace? The first thing it teaches us is that peace is connected to trust in God. Isaiah 26, 3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Because he trusts in you. So let's look at Abraham's story a little bit because I think this is a perfect example of how peace is connected to trusting. So again, hold on because we've got uh, a, lot of, a lot of scripture to go through for this, but I'm going to be closing up pretty soon, so don't, don't hate me too much. All right, so <laughs> let's go back and look at a little bit of history on this. Okay, we're going to take a 30,000-foot a look at this uh, passage of scripture, this, these seven chapters in Genesis in order to gain a picture of what was going on and why peace is connected to trusting in God. So we're going to look at Genesis 15 through 22. Now, not verses 15, chapters 15 through 22, because it builds a good picture of what's going on here. Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, or excuse me, Abram at the time, to provide him with numerous descendants. Genesis 16, what does Abraham do, he t- or Abram to do? He takes it into his own hands, takes Hagar, and the- she has a child, Ishmael. Genesis 17, God reminds him of the previous covenant, and then covenants with him again via circumcision. And he tells Abr- Abram that Sarai, his wife at the time, will give him an heir. And then he changes his, changes his and her name from Abram to Abraham, from Sarai to Sarah. So that now he has, excuse me, they have a new identity in God because of this covenant. Genesis 18, God sends three angels to remind Abraham of the covenant and the prophecy about the birth of his son, the son of the covenant. 
Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 20, Abraham, excuse me, Abraham fears Abimelech and tries to offer his wife, who is pregnant, to Abimelech as a peace offering, thinking that if he gives him this, this woman, who he called his sister, because technically she was his sister, but not of the same mother, if he gave this over, maybe that they would have favor on him. But then Abimelech has this dream, and he's going to die. Everything's around him going to die. And he's like, whoa, what are you doing to me, Abraham? He's like, well, I didn't really lie to you. She is my sister, but she's also my wife. So Abimelech says, take her back. I don't, I don't want any part of this. And, and on top of that, I'm going to give you a bunch of gifts to get, get away from me. Excuse me. Ooh. Getting excited here. So... That's Genesis 20. Genesis 21, Isaac is born, and Hagar and Ishmael are booted. They're booted out. And then comes Genesis 22. Genesis 22, God told Abraham to take that son, that son of the covenant, and offer him up as a sacrifice. Talk about trusting in God. Hold on, God. You told me that this is going to be the son through which all my descendants are going to come through which the nation is going to be built that you're going to build through this you're telling me now to go offer him as a sacrifice you see i think this was put in there because god was in part because god was testing abraham to really trust in him but also i think this had a dual purpose as a, a foreshadowing a looking forward to christ because God provided Abraham a child when his wife was barren. God told him to offer up his son on the altar. Then God provides him an alternate sacrifice. I see this as part of God holding true to his plan that man's sin, in this case Abraham's sin, requires an atonement. In this case, Isaac was the son of the covenant between God and Abraham. But God not only fulfilled his end of the covenant by sparing Isaac and offering a ram in his place, but he maintains a steadfast policy that sin requires an atonement. An atonement that only God could provide. Only God could provide. Not a, an atonement that would, be, would come from man, but an atonement that would come from God. God provided that atonement to Abraham to show him that God will provide not only an end, but the means to achieve that end. Just like Abraham had to trust in God for the deliverance of his firstborn from certain death, we must trust that same God, who did not spare his own only begotten son, but offered him up as a sacrifice to relinquish the claim of death on every believer. But how do you have peace when God tells you to kill your firstborn as a sacrifice? See, that peace comes because you trust that God has a plan. It comes through trusting in God. The second thing that peace is, or the Bible tells us about peace, is that peace comes through our identity in God. When we understand our identity, just like Abraham and Sarai gained a new, or Sarah gained a new identity in God through the covenant, and they were able to then gain trust and have peace in God, we too, as believers, when we get our new identity in Christ, 
we were able to have peace with God. Ravi Zacharias says, meaning is found in relationship. And you cannot have meaning in life until you know the truth about who you are, who God is, and what your purposes are. I like that. Just like we have learned through our lessons about the triangle, our identity can be found in two places, either what we do or who God is. And when we place our identity in what we do, we end up creating this transactional relationship with God where we are constantly seeking to find our identity in what we do and finding out how we can appease this God through what we do. And we define God in this different way that is not biblical. Ravi reminds us that true meaning and purpose comes from relationship. From God, we find our identity. Relationship develops that identity that we have with God. You see, his identity in us has a result of the natural outflow of good works as we submit to his will. Because we are no longer have to find our own purpose for ourselves, we realize that our actions are ordained by God before the world began. So the stress is gone, the longing for purpose and meaning is gone, and thus we have peace. And finally, my third and final point is God's peace in our hearts is ultimately found in relationship with Jesus. See, this peace is only available to believers. Zechariah 9.10 said, Behold, your king is coming, and he shall speak peace to the nations. That king that he was talking about is Jesus. Luke 2.10-14 says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, or have peace, For behold, he was talking to the shepherds, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly, verse 13 continues, and suddenly there was a multitude of angels who were singing what? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to all people, to the whole earth? That's not what it says. It says, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. With whom he is pleased. You see, it's impossible to have peace outside of a relationship with Jesus. Just like the angels revealed on that night so long ago that God has shared with us his holy inspired word, God's peace, or as God has shared with us in his holy inspired word, that God's peace is on those with whom he is pleased. Colossians 1.10 calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in every respect how can you please a God whom you don't have relationship with Psalm 51 16 and 17 for you God do not delight in sacrifice otherwise I would give it you are not pleased by burnt offerings the sacrifice the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken spirit and a contrite heart O God you will not despise. It's not about sacrifices. It's not about offerings, which are man-made gifts. It's about a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And how does someone have a broken spirit and a contrite heart? It's when the Holy Spirit breaks you because of your sin and shows you that you need God. Psalm 5, 4 says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, 
No evil dwells with you. If you have no relationship with God through Jesus, then your actions are not covered by the blood of Jesus. And they cannot be seen by God as covered by the blood of Jesus. You are still dead in your trespasses and sin. How then can you please God? Beloved, the truth is, is that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. That faith must be placed in the one true God. 